once upon a midnight dreary, I heard a snapping, a snapping near me, as I sought a story more frightful than ever told before. I tried to hold my fear inside me. No, my mother could not hide me, hide me, hide me from the monster. I sensed lurking at my door. I closed my laptop and nothing more. Come! I shouted. If you would have me, by the gods has Satan sent thee. But you will find some trouble if you open wide my door. Dare you open wide my door? Please, don't open up my door. I bent to listen, but heard no more. Wretch, I cried, you seek to scare me. Know this then that none shall win me, for I too have evil rotting deep inside my core. No longer would I sit there waiting, caught in this demon's contemplating. Was I a child to wither, fainting as I had done before? I kicked open mine own door. Shattered glass rained down upon my polished hardwood floor. Mirrored glass and nothing more. When I looked at the broken mirrors, then I saw the monster clearer. There I saw the evil demon. He was wearing mine own eyes. And the monster now sitting in my chair does my bidding, but I am not the monster staring from my mirrored floor. I am not a monster as I've told you all before. Do not name me monster, I would hear that word no more. And do not bring a mirror past my chamber door. For in the mirror's lies shall I gaze. Nevermore. Day on Snap Judgment. From PRX and NPR, we proudly present Spoot 3, the sequel to end all sequels. Amazing stories from real people who bumped up against something very bad in the night. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. say how do you know how do you know it's haunted how do you know a place is touched with a presence from beyond the grave well i could speak until i was blue in the face but what if you heard the truth directly from man's best friend our next storyteller susan she had a sense that something in her house was amiss something was wrong when she started getting signals from her best friend I live in New Orleans and I have a dog and her name is Daikon. Fast forward, I move into this place, an old Victorian on the bayou called the Bayou St. John. And she would never just walk in the house. I'd open the front door and she'd stop. She'd go in the house and she'd be staring in the living room. So I always knew there was something in the living room. I didn't know what it was. This was a Sunday in October, early October, on that Sunday night. Got into bed, my dog Daikon was on her pillow across the room turned off the light and I couldn't go to sleep. There was something that just kept presence that was in the room with me. And I could feel that presence on my back, breathing on my neck. 
like this is crazy and I would turn over the other way still felt it it was there that same feeling of that heat when you put it just up to your face just before you touch your face that's what it felt like I felt like it now was nose to nose with me and it was there it was there with whatever it was it was there in the bed with me so this went on for about an hour and a half two hours in the darkness I finally turn on the light but it's midnight now so I go in the bathroom splash water on my face and I'm like all right stop go back to bed so I I go back in my bedroom I got in the bed I reached up and turned off the light and before my hand was away the whole bed slammed and the headboard hit the wall it slammed the wall and I immediately, in that split second, thought, that's the dog, Daikon, trying to get in bed with me. So I quickly turned on the light, and I looked down, sound asleep. She was sound asleep. And I was like, O-M-G, it's in my bedroom. And then I pulled the covers up really tight around my neck. And that's when I saw it him and it was an older white man really really pale he had a very thin thin nose it was long and narrow kind of had a little point at the end and he had long gray hair bald on top stringy long and he was wearing one of those turn of the century or mid 1800s I'm not sure one of those nightgowns where they used to tie it around their neck and then it tied around the, their wrists and then it was open you know at the bottom a nightgown and that's who was in my room and so I laid there all night I don't know what made me stay there I had no idea I got up the next morning you know got dressed went to work and I called a friend of mine and she was crazy mad at me. Something's in your house. It's coming to your bedroom. You need to get out of there. You need to get out of there. So when I came home that night from work, my dog came out of the house onto the porch, which she never does, and was pushing against my knees. What's going on? And I'm petting her, and I'm petting her. And I looked down, and she had chewed her tail to a bloody stump. She was completely wigged out. So I took heed to my friend's advice and I took my dog out of the situation for the week. Then by middle of the week, I guess it was about Wednesday, I decided this was crazy. So I came home from work. I went straight to my bedroom down the hallway. The dog, Daikon, would not come in the bedroom. And I just stood in my bedroom and I said, all right, enough. I'm really sorry you're trapped here. I'm really sorry that you have a miserable life. I said, but it's over. I can't help you. I can't do anything to make it better. But I will tell you, get the out of my bedroom. Get the F out of my bedroom. And while you're at it, if you touch or torture my dog again, I will burn this house. Do not torture my dog. Leave her alone. Go back to your hole in the living room. You were fine there. I accepted you there, but you've crossed the line. And I kind of was shaking when I was saying it, but it was empowering at the same time. I took my dog and we went for a walk. I came back that night. I thought, well, let's see what happens and she followed me into the room, my dog. It was back in the living room. I think within two or three weeks of that, I decided I was moving. I didn't want to put Daikon through that. So that's what happened. So I moved, and I moved three blocks away. I have a great place. Daikon loves it, totally fine there. She's like a whole nother dog, never choose herself.
Thank you, Susan, for telling us your story. We are so glad to hear that Daikon is still wagging her tail. Throw our bone from us here with the snap. That story was produced by Mark Ristich, Aaron Neff, and Renzo Gorio. Ghosts and spirits and ghouls. We sense them out there, waiting out there, but every once in a while, we discover the scary thing that's even closer than we suspected. See, at the age of 19, Alan was working at a mental hospital in the Midwest. He started working the wing with the healthiest patients, but Alan, he wanted to be where the action was. He asked to be transferred to the acute ward, which housed some of the most psychotic people in the region. Alan's request was approved. We had a signal that would be piped throughout the building if somebody became violent or suicidal or whatever. It was called Code Red, and then it would be followed by a room number or an area. Code Red, cafeteria, Code Red, lobby. What you were told in orientation was drop whatever you were doing and go to that spot as fast as you could. You really developed situational awareness. You always knew who was behind you and what patients were where and where your friend was. When you went into rooms, you were aware where was the space that somebody could be hiding with anything to club you over the head when you walked in. It was very common for patients to barricade themselves in a room, pick up a chair and start smashing at the windows. We had ways to get into the room, almost tactical squad-like, and overcome this person. It was around 19, oh, I don't remember, when did, the, when did the movie Exorcist come out? It was in the early 70s. There was just this spate of admissions of people who were convinced that they were possessed by the devil. They were, they were Linda Blair. They were, they, they, they were now possessed. And it was like, God damn that movie. When will that movie be out of the theaters? They were almost always young people. And they were going to a late night showing of The Exorcist. And they all dropped acid. It was like, okay, how stupid do you have to be that you would do acid and go see The Exorcist? If somebody came in and thought they were possessed, they got stronger. I remember admitting a relatively young woman, a really small woman, as I recall. It was just a titanic battle. Eyes just wild, cursing in tongues, projectile vomiting, sores that would appear almost before your eyes. We had leather straps and locks. They would attach to the metal bed frame. One would be on the wrist, one on the arm, chest restraints just above the elbow, ankles, just above the knee. And these are big, thick buckles and locks. We stepped back, sort of in relief, of just, oh, thank God, the hard part is done here. The person was, of course, continuing to thrash and speak in tongues. And at one point, I do not know how it happened, But we all saw it. She appeared to rise about two or three inches off the bed across the whole body. I remember looking at the psych assistant next to me. We both just go. I can't explain it. When you were confronted with Satan-obsessed people, you had to be afraid, is my grip on reality that tenuous too? We see this as just a clinical psychological thing. Uh, you're, you're crazy. Yeah, and if you're wrong, <laughs> you know, I mean, anybody who doesn't posit that whatever their worldview is could be completely and utterly wrong, well, you're not much better than a psychotic person because they're completely convinced 
that the way they see the world is not insane. So you're just mimicking them unless you can at least let in that you don't know what's going on. Thank you very much, Alan, for scaring the bejesus out of me. That story was produced by Nick Vanderkoop. You know you cannot turn on the lights yet. We've got catacombs, vampires, voices that whisper in the night when snap judgment. Spook 3, the sequel to In All Sequels, continues. Stay tuned. Welcome to the place where all the creatures meet. The last building to your left on the dead end street. To find skeleton bones outside in the pavement. And torture chambers down in the basement. The sign on the door that can't be missed. The gates enter. But at your own risk, as people been reported going in the haunted house, but never again seen coming out. Snap Judgment, Spook 3, we're calling this one the sequel to In All Sequels. My name is Glenn Washington. Um, my name is Glenn Washington. Washington. I'm, I'm sorry, who, who is this? Oh, Glenn Washington, you don't recognize my voice? It is I, the Prince of Darkness, here to control your radio show. <laughs> Prince of Darkness? Look, um, you've got most of the dial, the radio dial already. I don't know what you want with my show. Glenn, I'm here because I was wondering if, if I could possibly tell a story. You want to tell a story? Oh, yeah, I'd love to be on your show. I'm a huge fan. Oh, uh, what's your story there, Prince of Darkness? Well, okay, so what happened was I was getting ready for a business trip down to L.A. to pick up a few souls. And right, right. I'm driving down the 880, and I pull off and get up to the airport, and then it hits me. What hit you? Oh, my God. I think I left the stove on at my house. Uh-oh. So I turn the car around, I gun it back up the freeway, and as I pull off, I look up in the sky, and there's a huge billowing cloud of smoke above my house. Oh, no. That's what I thought, and I instantly thought of my Beanie Baby collection. Beanie Babies? You got Beanie Babies? Oh, yeah. I have about 2,500 different assorted. I keep them in pristine condition. There's a whole room oh, that, That's great, them. Prince of Darkness. What happened next? Uh, okay, so I race down off from the freeway, down through the city, and I pull up right around my house, and... And what? What happened? Turns out my neighbors, Frank and Paulette, were just having one of their barbecues, and that's where the smoke was from. Well, that's great. Um, so, uh, what happened to the stove? Oh, the stove. Yeah, no, I didn't leave it on. I, I think about that all the time. I'm kind of possessive-compulsive when it comes to that stuff. Well, that's a fantastic story. Thanks so much for... Do, um, do you really think it's good? Oh, that is great. Great story. Anyway, so... Is, is it going to be on the radio? Ah, <laughs> uh, do I have a choice? No! <laughs> there he is, the Prince of Darkness. He's got a book coming out called The Book of Lost Souls. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. Anyway, I gotta set up this next story. It's all about this guy named Brad. And when Brad decides to tempt fate, fate strikes back with a vengeance. My name is Brad, and I am a chocolate maker. 
I went to Peru to visit with some of our cocoa farmers when Dia de los Muertos was happening. One of the things that I had heard was to check out the catacombs in Iglesia de San Francisco, uh, right downtown in historic uh, Lima. Apparently there's you know, over 70,000 people buried underneath this church. So I thought, oh great, let's, let's do it. The church is absolutely stunning. And I walked in and you know, I was taken on a tour with two other people down into the catacombs. When we first went down the this, this staircase, the ceiling was very, very low. And I had to bend at the waist to walk through these corridors. The, the temperature changed. It was very cold, very dark, and you know I could feel my heart just instantly start to like beat with excitement. The the stone on the walls is dusty. It is like wet drippings, you know. It was creepy. So as I'm walking along, I look to the side, and there are these troughs that are just filled with bones, femurs, and you know, tibias and fibias and ribs. And following these narrow walkways, there were these huge wells, like 25 feet wide, 35 feet deep, completely packed with bones and skulls. they had actually arranged them in this radial pattern. So there were skulls, and then you'd have a radial fan out of femurs, and then skulls and then bones. In being so captivated by this well of, of remains, I wanted to take a picture as a good tourist, but there was a no picture policy. And I felt like there are certain things that are sacred and you just shouldn't mess with it, you know? Especially on Day of the Dead. <laughs> but I live in a world of science. It's hard to find a place for superstition. You know, the tour guide was already into the other room. I was kind of trailing behind a little bit and, you know, I leaned over the edge and I took a picture. And then I felt like, what did I just do? I probably shouldn't have done that. I just disrespected the dead. That next morning, I just started feeling really sick. And I immediately thought to myself, wow, here it is. This is, this is your payback. I'm taking that picture. And the scientific part of my mind was, was saying, oh, come on, you know, do you believe in science or do you believe in ghosts, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's when I descended into the worst sickness that I've had in my life. <sighs> Incessant coughing 24 hours a day for about a month. I was coughing up blood, I was up all night delirious. Every time I coughed, it was just this stinging pain in my head. I was really, really bad. That sickness was, was, so, was so terrifying. Um, maybe it was just all in my head, but I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if I would be coughing right now if I hadn't taken that picture. And then I started praying and accepting that there was some sort of superstitious world that I needed to honor. And it wasn't too much longer after that that I started getting better. Am I superstitious? I don't think I am, but maybe I should be. I think it's good to be cautious. And I feel like I've suffered enough. <laughs> I don't think I have a lot to lose by saying yes. I think I have a lot to lose by saying no.
Thank you, Brad, for sharing your story with Snap. Keep it up, please, with the chocolate, but maybe think twice about that career in photography. That piece was produced by Pat and C.D. Miller. (coughs) Do not let go of anyone's hand. Hold on tight. Don't let go, because I am very proud to bring Nate DeMeo to the Snap Judgment microphone. And Nate has a history lesson. A history lesson that you will not soon forget. His wife was the first to die. She was 35 years old. It was 1883. And it left George Brown a widower at 41 years old, with five kids and a small farm he'd carved out of the woods in Exeter, Rhode Island. Six months later, his oldest daughter, named Mary, just like her mother, started coughing, just like her mother, and died. Seven years later, George's only son, Edwin, started coughing, just like his mother, Mary, just like his sister, Mary. Edwin held on, though it seemed like his life was being sucked out a little bit more every night. And then it came from Mercy. She was pretty and 19. It took her quickly, and she was buried in the frozen ground in a January morning in the small cemetery on the hill. And George Brown went home that night to the old farmhouse in the woods, terrified that the same thing that came for his wife Mary and his daughter Mary and his daughter Mercy, the thing that still threatened his only son, would come for the two daughters he had left. And his neighbors were simply terrified. They came to George Brown one morning to tell him the truth about what had been killing his family. The good people of Exeter knew why whole families sometimes wasted away. One death was tragic luck. A second, a third, was supernatural. They told George Brown that one of his family members, his beloved wife, his daughters, one of them was rising from the dead and coming into his home while he slept and slowly draining the life from his children. One of them, Mary, Mary, or Mercy, was a vampire. And there was only one way to know which it was, and only one thing they could do to save his son and keep his two daughters alive. In 1893, George Brown and his neighbors go to the cemetery on the hill and dig up the bodies of his Mary, Mary, and Mercy. And Mercy, who had died just three months before and had been buried in the frozen ground, still had warm blood in her heart which they knew because they pulled it from her chest. And that fact convinced them that Mercy was the vampire. And so they burned George Brown's daughter's body and brewed her ashes into a tea and made his only son drink it to keep him safe from the evil that was killing him, only to see him die two months later. Because drinking a tea brewed from the exhumed corpse of your sister doesn't cure tuberculosis. And burning the body of Mercy Brown didn't protect George Brown's other daughters either, though they were spared nonetheless. And George Brown knew some mercy. At least that much. Nate DeMeo, he's the creator of the fantastic storytelling podcast. I recommend it in the highest terms possible. It's called the Memory Palace. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, you may recall the modern-day tragedy, the Indian Ocean tsunami, the tsunami that happened the day after Christmas 2004, and more than 230,000 people lost their lives. Snap storyteller Jeff Greenwald, he went to the island of Sri Lanka, one of the hardest-hit countries, to do some humanitarian aid work just a few months after the event. As I traveled down to the south coast town of Matara, I came across a smiling young man who was waving to me outside of his brand new hotel. The young owner, Arjun, was desperate for guests. He flagged me down. Stay in our hotel, he said. We have beautiful rooms. The beach is completely safe. We've got a great chef. And I tell you what, I'll give you a room for half price. It was an offer I couldn't refuse. 
Every day I would go out in the morning and look out at the ocean. This ocean that had created so much horror in the months just past. And remembering the craziness and chaos that had unfolded here just months ago. Like many people who lived in Sri Lanka, I was totally creeped out at this point. Somehow the ocean had been a demonic force, something that had taken so many lives that to just get in and casually start swimming seemed almost sacrilegious. But on my third day there, with the temperature in the 90s, I could hardly resist. Arjun walked with me out to the beach. Go on, go on, he said. There's nothing to worry about. I went up up to my knees, lay out flat, and then started breaststroking out into the warm, luscious water. I swam out for about 50 yards, and then I stopped. The the water was so shallow that I could easily stand up. I felt something really strange under my foot, almost like a twig, but not quite. I bent over into the water, reached down. It was a bone, a small white bone. Probably just a bird bone, I thought, and threw it back into the ocean. I swam some more, stopped, and stood up again. This time I felt a whole bunch of these little stick-like objects under my feet. I reached down and scooped up a whole handful, brought them up. They were all bones. These were human bones. A tooth a finger bone, a toe bone, pieces of rib. I began to shake all over. I was swimming on top of a a pile of bones. I started to gulp water. I've got to get out of here, I thought. Kicking, 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 and working my way as quickly as I could to the shore. It was months after the tsunami, but the remnants of all these human lives was still lying right below me. Arjuna saw me. He began to shout, What's wrong? What's wrong? Arjun, I yelled, the ocean is full of bones. It's full of human bones. He stood there and began laughing. Don't worry, he said, don't worry. Last November, when we built the hotel, we just tore up the old cemetery. That's what you're seeing. These bones, they have nothing to do with the tsunami. Arjun was right. Somehow, that made it all okay. I opened my hand and looked at the bones, which I'd still been clutching. They were no longer so terrifying. These weren't the remains of victims who had been lost in the tsunami. These are anonymous bones, antique bones, of people who had died over generations, many of them peacefully, some of them in their sleep. I let them fall into the water and began my breaststroke out towards the horizon, perfectly content to swim above this ocean of bones. Jeff Greenwald, ladies and gentlemen. Jeff Greenwald, author of Snake Lake and several other books, will have a link to the world of Jeff on our website, snapjudgment.org. And when we return, Stephanie Fu hears voices. For real, when Snap Judgment Spook 3, the sequel to In All Sequels, continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment proudly presents Spook 3, the sequel to End All Sequels. My name is Glenn Washington, and 
we ask the question, is there a link between this world and the other, other places and people who can transverse the various planes? Questions, questions. When I have questions, I often turn to Stephanie Fu for answers. When I was a little girl, I did not like ghosts. I was downright terrified of them. It wasn't even that they would do something to me. My greatest fear was just to see one standing at the foot of my bed. And so I kept my lights on and stayed awake all night, every night. Finally, my mom took me to church to see our priest, and he decided to exorcise me. Lord, take the demons out of this girl, he said. Let the Holy Spirit and the guardian angels of heaven surround her in her room and protect her with their almighty swords. And it worked. I imagined my own personal angels decapitating any ghosts right above my head, and I slept soundly. But over the years, as I grew older, I slowly lost my faith in God. Unfortunately, ridiculously, I did not lose my faith in ghosts. So now, I have no protection. It's just me and them. My fear made me the best person on staff to spend the night in an old haunted theater looking for ghosts. That's why Snap Judgment sent me to the Warfield Theater. This is it, the Warfield. It opened in San Francisco in 1922. It's rumored that Al Capone had his offices in here. Back then, the theater district was like Times Square. Lights, marquees, and during Prohibition, speakeasies. Deep underneath San Francisco, there was a system of secret tunnels running along this entire district. Revelers came in through the barbershop next to the warfield. Half its black and white checkered floor lifted up, and you crawled down a tiny staircase that opened up to a dance floor, a bathhouse, and a bar. Now, many of the tunnels are sealed off, but the speakeasy remains, mostly abandoned now, a storage space for equipment. In a corner of the old speakeasy, there's a caged-off alcove that's painted to look like a harem. On the walls, Art Deco camels, women in hijabs, flying carpets, and a scattering of bullet holes. And it's here that the ghosts hang out with the living, the employees of the Warfield. Many of the workers have been here for decades, and they all have a ghost story. People are walking across the stage, and they think they see, out of the corner of their eyes, someone up in the balcony smoking. Then they turn to look, and they don't see anyone there, but they see smoke hanging in the air. The dryer door opened all the way up, went all the way down, and then the dryer started. I walked out, and I stuck my head down the hall, and it looked like the last of one leg, like you just see somebody walking into a room. Opened it up and walked around in there. There's nobody there. I've seen orbs go from one room to the next. Numerous people quit. They loved rock music, and they loved working here, and they spent a night here, and then they never came back. You'll see. You'll see. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah, I'm not ready for this. When I have to walk through the speakeasy to get to the bathroom, I cannot even handle it. Right now I have to walk through. Oh my god, I hate it. Oh my god, I hate this. Oh my god, I hate this. I have to walk. Okay. The good news is, I won't be spending the night here alone. I have arranged for a group called the Ghost Trackers to come help me look for ghosts tonight. Their captain is Gloria. My name is Gloria Young. I am founder and director of Ghost Trackers Paranormal Research Group. I have over 20 years of paranormal experience. And that means she knows how to find ghosts. She's done it on a bunch of TV shows. She and her crew of five others show up bringing along K2 monitors that measure electromagnetic fields, EVP recording equipment, night vision cameras. After I meet up with the crew, we venture down to find us some ghosts. I'm showing them around the tunnels when I suddenly realize that they're not following me, nobody's around. They're all back in the last hallway, and Ellen, one of the hunters, is afraid to go forward. I saw an old man over in the corner, so. You saw an old man over yeah. there? She's able to, to see. To see ghosts. Yeah, and it's gonna sound really cliche, but he's like a stagehand. And I got cancer. You, you think that he died of cancer? Yeah. Yeah. There's something very strong going on in there. They start talking to him. 
Ellen begins to sense a name. Name's John. And John, are you here? John, John, the old man that you saw is John. Are you here, John? Why are you still here? Are you okay? Is there anything we can do for you? John, do you know that you're dead? Thankfully, John doesn't seem to be talking back. And so the ghost hunters decide to move on. On the way out, I stop Ellen and ask her if she's ever seen a ghost whose identity has been verified historically. All the time. All the time. Can you give me, like, one example? Um, I'll go with you if you want. No, Julie, pick me up. I... I can't think of anything. I know, it's a out of my head, too, but um, yes, it happens all the time. You've been um, more than once verified by another psychic. Yeah, that's for sure. Hmm. Next, we shamble over to the haunted dressing room, one of the most active places in the theater. This is supposedly where many people have seen orbs floating back and forth. It is pitch black in the room. My spine is tingling. We all sit quietly and wait. Gloria and Ellen start to sense something. I think there was a fight in here. I mean, not a good fight. And actually, I think it was two women. Ellen, what do you think? Yeah, one of the names was Vanessa from the 1920s. An actress or a singer, Uh and the other one was like... What I got is a lot what what she said of two women fighting over a man. Just listening to this conversation, something feels a bit off. And not in the spooky way. It just seems that all this information is coming too easily. And then I hear someone in Gloria's direction say, I smell alcohol. Alcohol? Did somebody say they smelled alcohol? Somebody didn't seriously just say, I smell alcohol? No, no I thought I heard something. I thought say, you said that, Gloria. Yeah, that's what I heard. And that wasn't you, Gloria? No. So I was going to ask you why you were whispering. I don't whisper. It was dark. So, I don't know who said it. Whoever it was, they're silent now. So we continue on. But the ghosts are everywhere. Up on the balcony, Gloria begins to freak out again. Hi. I heard you're not feeling good. Oh, it's that same thing that I was feeling downstairs. I started getting that shaky knees thing again. Have you always felt presences, or is that something you trained yourself to do? No, actually, anybody can be a psychic. And I talked to many different people, and they all gave me instructions. So for two years, I did that. The first part of any kind of paranormal research is to pay attention. Have you ever been in your home and heard somebody call your name, and you turn around, there's nobody there? Somebody's actually touching you. It's there. So now I get pictures in my head every once in a while. Every once in a while. Just like you. A what? You have somebody that stands right here. And I'm getting the impression that it's like a grandmother. Somebody that was very close to you. And you still think of this person a lot. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? But it's a dead person? Mm-hmm. Somebody that's passed on. Hmm. And you would go and visit this person. Sandy, Sarah, Sahara, Sa- somebody that is over you. And every once in a while, you feel it. I didn't really have any family growing up. Barely any parents. No Sarahs. But I do have a great aunt I barely knew named Sam Kuche. Maybe she's looking out for me? It's a nice idea. I didn't know what to make of all of this. It was 3 a.m. and I was trying to be open. And I couldn't feel a thing. But just when I was ready to turn in, I heard this. A bassy rumbling that was loudest when we sat in the dressing rooms. Sounded exactly like gear cases being rolled across the stage, which was right above our heads. We kept going up to the stage to see what was going on, but it was silent there. There were no gear cases. There was nobody at all. When the ghost trackers left that evening, They told me they loved the rumbling and really, really loved the ghostly alcohol line they heard. They said that line made the night a success. But I wanted to withhold judgment until I listened to my tape.
The next morning, I listened very carefully through all my tape for ghostly noises. I heard nothing. Then I replayed the alcohol line. One more time. When I heard this, I thought, I have to give Gloria a call. Hi, how are you doing? Pretty good. Cool. Um, So I am just cutting the piece together right now. What happened is when I got home and I put the alcohol, do you remember that part? Yes. When I put that into my editing software, I made it louder. It it very much sounds like your voice saying, I smell alcohol. And I wanted to ask you what your response is to that. My response is going to be the same as it was then. It wasn't me that said it. It sounds like me. I know it sounds like me. I went back right away to go and find it on, you know, on a recorder. It's not the first time that somebody's voice has come out on tape, but it does happen. I am a stronger person than the rest of the people that were with me. I don't know. That's what she said. But an hour later, I got an email from Gloria. This is an excerpt from that email. I often test my peers and see what they sense and see if they can pick out various things. That's exactly what I did there and that's exactly what you caught. That was me saying what you heard and I was trying to see if they would catch that too. Unfortunately, I had to play sly because I happened to be Skyping with a fellow ghost hunter when you called. Sorry about any confusion. Gloria. And that's when I knew. That I was alone. I had lost God, now I'd lost ghosts too. And what was left was a void. Instead of feeling relief that I would never see that dreaded ghost standing at the foot of my bed, I just felt abandoned. But I just kept stewing about this story over and over for days, and I thought, okay, fine. I don't believe in ghosts anymore, but that mysterious rumbling, I know I heard that. So I was going to get down to the bottom of this. I called the house manager of the Warfield. He's a real no-nonsense guy. Tells it like it is, always. His name is Larry. Hi, Larry. Hello. So during the hunt, the one thing we couldn't explain was the sound of something rolling really heavy. And it was coming from right above uh, the dressing rooms. Do you have a logical explanation for this? And, like, could it have been something on the street? Uh, I don't. What's right there is the stage. And there's nothing else that really makes those sounds, but we hear them all the time, so. Right. You hear this regularly. The only thing that can be is echoes of cases. But to be clear, there are no cases, right? There's nothing there that makes those sounds. No. No one has access to that. There's probably a very sane explanation for all of this. But I can't find out what it could be. And, you know, I'm okay with that with the doubt that keeps me from knowing for sure. Because I think that maybe you can't hunt for ghosts. You can only wait for them to come to you. And that knowledge doesn't really feel scary anymore. That sound, it kind of just feels like a hand, reaching out from far away, holding mine. Thanks so much to the good people at San Francisco's historic Warfield Theater. And if you dug that story, we made a little movie about it. And by we, I mean Will Urbina. It's ready for you right now at snapjudgment.org. You've been listening to Snap Judgment Spooked 3. And it is okay to come out from under the bed where the good stories come from they come from snappers all over the world hit us up on the Facebook Snap Judgment Twitter Snap Judgment ORG what you you miss something don't worry we've got full episodes awaiting your listening pleasure on our website snapjudgment.org you don't like websites we understand that too iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud wherever else amazing material is given away like chattel Snap was produced by myself and the scariest ghouls of Gotham City. But first, please... 
put your hands together for the headless horseman himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. If you hear beats bumping in the dead of night, not to fear, he's just a beat master, Pat Masidi Miller. <laughs> Anna Sussman plays with Ouija boards. Stephanie Fu can speak to dead people. Renzo Gorio denies drinking blood. Julia DeWitt moves pencils with her mind. Nick Vanderkoek finally believes that Snap Studios are haunted and the darkness can see Will Urbina. Now, would you leave your best friend tied to a tree in the middle of the night next to the old McPherson house just to see if they saw the ghost of old man McPherson? No! Of course you wouldn't do that. Well, don't do it to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting either. They do not appreciate it, and I just want to make a personal apology for any misunderstanding. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, the amazing crew that would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. PRX.org. Youth Speaks, where the last generation, the dead one, picks one night to rise from the grave and speak to the current generation, and the current generation runs away screaming in fear. YouthSpeaks.org And now, you know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could go for a real fun camping trip out in the middle of the woods with your good-looking buddies, knowing full well that you are in no danger because, according to horror movie rules, you did the right thing and brought a black guy along, who will most certainly be murdered first when the evil comes. But the black dude has to leave to help his sister with her homework, and now all bets are off, and you don't know what to do when the evil springs out, and you know you are first on the list, and you could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.